Welcome to It's Just Historical, a podcast dedicated to reading, writing, and publishing historical fiction. I'm your host, Suzanne Dunlap, author of Historical Fiction for Adults and Teens. This podcast is brought to you by my passion for the art and craft of writing fiction and my delight in talking to authors I admire about books I love. I am so thrilled to be here today with C.W. Gortner, otherwise known as Christopher, who is a USA Today bestselling author and an international bestselling author of historical fiction, and one of my personal favorite authors of historical fiction. So how are you today, Christopher? I'm doing well, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure. I'm, it's been a long time, but yeah. So your most recent book, which I read and of course absolutely loved, is The First Actress. Can you talk a little bit about what led you to write about Sarah Bernhardt and how that process went? She's always been someone I've been interested in. I, my grandmother and my grandfather in Spain were both theater actors. My grandfather was actually a really well-known movie actor as well in Spain. And so I grew up hearing stuff like Don't Be a Bernhardt when I was too dramatic. And I'd just always been interested in the theater and in acting in general because it's, it runs in my family. And she was always known to me. And as I got older, I heard more stories about her legendary exploits. And I always thought she'd make a great character for a novel. And as my career has gone on and I branched out from I started writing about Renaissance era queens. I started exploring different eras and different kinds of women. She came up as a subject I really thought I'd like to explore. And after the success of Mademoiselle Chanel, which where I branched out into a different century and a different type of woman, the doors opened a little bit for me to do more of it. And she just came up when I proposed a subject after Romanoff Empress. My editor really liked the idea of a Sarah Bernhardt novel. And so I had to decide what I wanted to do with the story because she led a very full and big life. And so I had to figure out where I wanted to find the arc in the story. And I thought how she became famous was really fascinating because of the era she lived in and the challenges she faced in her rise to, to fame in the theater. It kind of tackled a bunch of different issues that I'm always interested in, women empowerment, women's rights, single motherhood, there was just so much into the story that I thought would be interesting to explore. And that's how the book was born. I I really appreciated that actually about the book that you took on her early life and before she was this larger than life figure. And and that really worked for me. So I, I was grateful to have that. And I, I love Sarah Bernhardt. I've read, I love Oscar Wilde. I've read biographies and everything. And she comes up with all of that. And, and he isn't a figured until later in the book when he's actually, when she actually meets him when she goes to London. But right. one of the things that I found absolutely endearing was her whole love of animals. Her yeah, whole she, thing. Yeah, she loved animals. <laughs> Yeah. 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 How did you research that? And what, you know, well, it comes is up it? a lot. It comes up in her biographies. There's mentions of her menagerie of animals and it's definitely always brought up. And so I wanted to do a little more exploring of that because it's mentioned in the biographies, but it's not explored in depth. 
And so in one sort of doing research, archival research, I'm not quite re remember where I found this, but I read that she had offered to rescue this puma cub <sighs> from the zoo in Paris. Because after the siege, of course, many of the animals, including two very beloved elephants, had been slaughtered for me because everybody was starving to them. And um, the zoo of the Tullier was in ruins. And this little puma cub had been orphaned and the zookeeper was thinking about putting it down or selling it because he, he couldn't maintain the zoo. And Sarah impulsively offered to take it into her house and take care of it. And I was like, really, a puma cub? <laughs> you know, this is only something Sarah Bernhardt would do. Yeah. And so she did this and she had this puma. And I thought, wow, what a great anecdote for the book. I couldn't find out more than that. I'm like, I don't know how the puma ended up but I, that the Puma features in the book. And then I also read that when she was in London, she bought these two, this cheetah out of this guy who was an exotic breeder and she let it loose in Hyde Park to go hunting. <laughs> I was like, really? And she actually got a citation for it yeah. um, from the police. So um, <laughs> I was like, wow. And she was really well known for rescuing, you know, dogs from the street and letting them run around her salon. And she had cats and birds and all kinds of animals. So it was something she loved. And it, I thought it was a great addition to the story to have this. I think a lot of it, she had a very difficult childhood and a difficult relationship with her family. And so I think animals gave her that sort of unconditional sense of family that she always was seeking in her life. Yeah, I, it was just charming <laughs> to have them in there. You, you mentioned something in talking about that you're interested in all these women's issues, and as am I. One of the things that struck me a lot when I read The First Actress is that she was unapologetic about her past and her the fact that she had this illegitimate child. And this was at a time when morals were pretty... It was Victor Victorian era in yeah, London, right? Yeah. Part. She lived mo most of her rise to fame is during the late Victorian era. Mm -hmm. First of all, she was very unconventional. Her mother worked as a courtesan, not as Paris was. This is the era of the courtesans, and it's one of the things that attracted me to writing about the book. It's an era of Paris that I really find fascinating. This era when all of these women who couldn't find work because really women, there were very little options for women as far as employment goes. You could get married, you could be a seamstress, you could be a whore, but courtesans were this different ilk of women. They, they had to train very carefully because it was all about entertaining men in a salon and you had to be as skilled outside the bedroom as you were inside of it to maintain a clientele. And it was a much more sophisticated form of prostitution. And though Sarah's mother wasn't highly successful at it, there were very there were several women that became very famous mm -hmm. as courtesans. So courtesans were not poorly regarded. It's some, one of the things I found out in my research. They were an accepted part of society. The wives of men who visited courtesans weren't amused. Mm -hmm. um, they weren't received in high society. But they were very much a part of the landscape. Sarah probably wouldn't have had so much trouble admitting to that past as she mm. would have. And also we have to bear in mind too that today actors are the epitome of glamor and, and social height in our culture. 
and moneymakers. But at the time that Sarah was an actress, actors were less well regarded than courtesans. Yeah. Actors perceived in society, actors were viewed, it was considered a very low class way to make a living. So she would have had more trouble being accepted as an actress than she would have been as a courtesan. And, and that's one of the dilemmas I try to draw out in the book when she decides to become an actress. It, it's one of the chief obstacles with her mother, chief um, reasons of friction. Her mother wants her to continue the family trade because it's more lucrative. Mm. And it's a more safe path for her. And choosing to be an actress is extremely risky and controversial. Very few women succeeded as actresses. And most actresses in Paris at the time, they doubled as courtesans. Because actresses had to provide their own makeup. Oftentimes they had to pay for their own costumes. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an easy way to make a living. So many of them had patrons. And so Sarah's unapologeticness strikes us today as being very avant-garde and forward because we don't have the same view of prostitution that they did at that time. But for her, it wouldn't have been. The illegitimate child, on the other hand, was quite unusual. Hortizans, if they had illegitimate children, and it was inevitable, birth control was you know, <laughs> dicey at best at this time, they shuffled off their children to be educated outside if they wanted to keep them in the country, much less Sarah was raised. They were given away to an orphanage. There was just no way for a courtesan to, to be a mother and maintain her livelihood. Mm -hmm. uh, what's, how Sarah's mother behaves in the book strikes us as extremely cold today, but it was not uncommon for the era at all. Sarah's decision to keep the child and to raise it on her own was extremely unusual, but she did it. And I think, again, it, it's one of this psychological need that she has because as a child, she always felt unwanted. And so I think in a way, she didn't want to do that to her child. It would have been the easiest route. She was even sent away. She got assistance to go away to Belgium to, to have her pregnancy. And there was a complete opportunity to have the child and leave it there with a very nice couple that wanted to adopt it. And instead, she chose to keep the child. That's yeah, that really, yeah, that really struck me too. And it's one of the things that not just humanizes her, but makes her someone you really want to admire rather than this like a really flamboyant personality that she is, how she's often represented in your fiction or whatever. Yeah, it's very different. Well, part of what I try to do in all of my novels is that these women come with legends attached to them. And it's always wonderful. And as a, as a novelist, it's always very tempting to say, I'm just going to go with the legend because this is a larger than life character that I'll just be. But I try to, to find the human being underneath the legend because legend is often developed years later, sometimes during a person's lifetime, in Sarah's case, during her lifetime. And she played it up as she got older, sometimes after their death. But they're never quite what their legend is. They're human beings. They're, mm -hmm. They suffer. They have the same challenges and troubles and toils as all the rest of us. And so with Sarah, I wanted to, to find that core, you know, that was underneath the extravagance and the eccentricity, the sleeping in the coffin and the wearing a bat on her head and mm -hmm. all the things she did to, to get attention. There's still this young girl who never felt loved. She chooses a very unorthodox path to escape her fate. And I found that a much more interesting character to portray. It's always interesting to dig underneath the legend and find out 
what gave rise to it. I always find that much more fascinating. Yeah. And that's also, that's what powers a narrative really is what's going on underneath. What's why everything is really happening. And you're so good at making that at really, I just was turning the pages like crazy. I really, I needed to keep going through the book, which is always the case. And something that occurred to me when you were talking about the aesthetic of the courtesans and everything, there's a, there's definitely an echo of the geisha culture in that. Yes. Yeah. Very much so. Very much. Yeah, it's the same sort of situation. It's a social necessity. It wasn't shuffled away into a corner and hidden. It was it, it found its proper place and it was nurtured in a way that assisted the culture. Why and a lot I, of training involved too. A lot of training. To be a courtesan, you had to succeed. You had to know the language involved in order to attract a suitor. You had to know what to do once you had them. You had a lot of competition. Many girls flocked to Paris seeking this very opportunity. There was always someone younger and hungrier right behind you. Mm. So the most successful courtesans really knew how to navigate it. It involved a great deal of social skill. Some of the most successful courtesans were highly skilled socially and they were charming and they were excellent hostesses. And that's what kept the men coming. Mm. You know, the bedroom could attract for only so long. And so they had to have other means to keep these men because this was the way they lived. They were supported by their patrons that came and saw them. And they had salons where they entertained writers and artists. So that was always really fascinating to me too. A lot of times a, a new writer or a budding sculptor or painter, oftentimes the way they found their way to success in Paris at this, in this era was through a courtesan salon, was through being introduced to the salon by a courtesan and being patronized by her and then being seen by her rich clients and getting commissions. Right, yeah. Someone like Alexander Dumas, who's so famous to us for the novels, The Count of Monte Cristo or The Hunchback of Notre Dame, he was well known for patronizing courtesans throughout his life and was a client of Sarah's mother. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is yeah. how, he know, how he gets to know Sarah. Yes. So... What was your favorite thing you learned when you were researching Sarah Bernhardt for this book? Let me see. It's always hard to pick one favorite thing. <laughs> well, name a couple then. <laughs> um, with some characters, I write about a novel. I always say this in my interviews. I, you know, It's never about my judgment of the character. The moment I start judging a character, then the novel ceases to be about her and it starts to be about my judgment. And some characters I like more than others. Just they're more like me. <laughs> Sarah and I really got along. I loved her love of animals. I share that very deeply. And, mm-hmm. and most of the characters I write about, animals show up in the book. <laughs> because they usually, I find, not that I'm deliberately looking for a character that loves animals, but somehow it always comes up that particular character likes animals. I loved her. My favorite thing about her was her not caring what people thought sort of her her daring to be herself even when she was being told it was too much mm. it's too extravagant the way she dressed the way she presented herself I, th- that tenacity that adherence to her vision of herself was something i really loved it was my favorite thing about her i didn't know that so much of what we know about sarah bernhardt today the legend it was self-created mm. and she deliberately built this image of herself, but it also wasn't um, calculating. 
it, it was innate in her. She was a really talented painter. She was a very talented sculptress. She could have gone in any number of directions. Clearly she got hit with the pretty stick as far as artistic talent goes. Mm-hmm. She had her sculpt- her, today her sculptures are still exhibited. Her, some of her paintings are seen. You know, she ha- and yet you know, she chose this difficult path, which was on the stage. And yet none of it is cultivated. It's all innate. She's going with her gut. And many chances she stumbles and she falls, but she gets right back up. And I think that was my favorite thing about her, that this isn't someone who, who set out, this is how I'm going to portray myself in order to get this way. She stumbles her way towards it. And I always love that when someone stays true to themselves and finds success. And that was, I think, my favorite thing about her was her tenacity. Yeah. Yeah. And she's... Also, she seemed so genuine in terms of her kind of evolving sexuality and the fact that she was also, she portrayed Hamlet, right? Didn't she actually? Yeah. 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 Which is like the opposite of, unless you're doing a a trouser roll in in an English pantomime or something like that, is the opposite of what originally happened would have been Juliet, would have been a man (laughs) or something like that. She was really good at playing men. She found her first success on the stage playing a minstrel in in a small, unknown one-act play that just became incredibly successful, playing a little Florentine minstrel. And later on, years later, she debuted Hamlet on the stage in London. It was very successful. Yeah, did she... She must have done Ham. Did she do Hamlet in English or French? She did Hamlet in French. She always yeah. did in French. She she never spoke English very well. Mm. Um, when she came to America to perform, it was always in French, and audiences went nuts for her anyway. And this was before the era of subtitles and all that. Right. I never right. was really good with languages. That's what I always love when I, when I hear her talk people talk about her. I'm like, she's very French and she was innately French in everything she did. That's so um, interesting because I, you know, outside of France that people have adopted her internationally. It's so interesting because the history of Shakespeare in France, one of the first things that happened was the, the English actress, Harriet Smithson came over and performed Shakespeare in English and audiences went wild, even though they didn't under, they didn't understand exactly what, she was saying so it's this strange it's always fascinated me that thing about watching something watching an actor perform in a language you don't actually understand (laughs) it reminds me of i i saw kurosawa's the guide on tv when i was in sweden in japanese with swedish subtitles So. Yeah, it's the same thing except you don't have yeah. the subtitles. But we right. also remember that in that in these days, when Sarah was performing, many of the upper classes spoke French. Languages were were highly valued, and many people spoke French. But Sarah was very much an equal opportunity actress. She believed the theater should be accessible to everybody. So you know, people that came in off the street to see her wouldn't have spoken a word of French. Right. Yeah, I think the power of her acting was such that she could convey the drama, even if people didn't understand what she was saying. Yeah, God, would, wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to see that, <laughs> to there actually witness it? Yeah, there are fragments of her film. Yeah. She, she ventured into film when it was just starting out, and there's, there are extant fragments of some of her performances that you can find. I found a couple archived. And I think there's a couple online. I think I've seen them, but somehow that it doesn't really, obviously. It doesn't doesn't really capture her because it's filmed. 
and it's very mannered and it's very, very early filming. Today, yeah. she's very mannered by our standards of acting. But at the time when she was acting, she was revolutionary for how she approached character and, and her refusal to play by the rules of the theater of that time. She yeah. immersed herself completely in character. And actors in those times didn't do that. It was a cult of personality to be a successful actor. And so you always wanted that to come through even before the character. And so most successful actors of the era, like Talma, who was Napoleon's favorite actor, was very well known for standing at the edge of the stage and declaiming directly to the audience and being very much himself, no matter who he was playing. Mm. And Sarah was complete opposite. She didn't want you to see Sarah. She wanted you to see the character, uh, which is what we, the standard of acting today. So in many yeah. ways, she took that standard. She was one of the first to do that. Yeah, that, yeah, absolutely. And I was just thinking about this whole idea when she went to London and she would be invited to private parties to, to give a scene or something like that. Do people ever do that nowadays? I would I just love so. it. <laughs> nowadays, it's the equivalent. I don't know. You, you pay you know, $4 million for Beyonce to sing at your wedding. And, think, yeah. and some, some celebrities do that. They get paid a lot of money to, or they do commercials. Yeah. A lot of actors had to supplement their incomes. And so if you were well established, then you declaimed in salons and, and, and it was a way to supplement your income. They were paid engagements. Mm -hmm. You were paid for your time. And so Sarah, when she brought one to London, had a very extensive schedule drawn up by this entrepreneurial American she had met who mm -hmm. was trying to launch her internationally. Eventually, you know, she did do that. She launched herself internationally and she had her own theater company. That was the challenge for writing the book was that I could have gone on and on forever. Yeah. Somewhere. I have yeah. a word count that I can't bypass. So I had to end the book where I did, which is right as she becomes famous. Yes. And I think that was a really good decision too, because sometimes with these people, sometimes their lives trail off or not great stuff happens and then you have to figure out how to how to make that how to make that satisfying to a reader so that was yeah, I, I, I was glad I mean, she ended on a high note she had an incredible career but the rest of her life involved she, she traveled and toured extensively with, mm -hmm. a with her company so i would have had to have switched the entire cast of characters everything changes mm -hmm. and it works great in a novel in a, you know in real life but it doesn't work so great in novel when you have to, when you're ending nearing the end of 300 pages or 400 pages and you suddenly have a whole new cast of characters coming in a whole new story. So my challenge always as a novelist when I'm taking on these real life people is I have to find an arc within their life that I can portray. Yeah. You know, I have to find where a story starts and where a story can end. And with Sarah, yeah. the arc most naturally seemed to be at that point. I could have also just as easily have started once she was famous and then followed her through her tours, but you would miss all the stuff that makes her who she is. And I'm always yeah. interested in how someone becomes who they eventually are. Yeah. And that's well, what I explore in my books. Yes, it works. It definitely works. Something that I really thought was very clever and really good is that the, that, period in the life during her life during the siege when you know there's battles going on and everything that could have been this big huge 
part of the book. It's the action and the thing. But it was like, it was a, a comparatively small part. And, and I liked that so much because we got through that and understood the, the import of it and how it affected her. But you really stayed focused on her rather than getting distracted by all the interesting historical stuff that was going on. The, the 1870 siege of Paris by the Prussians is, was brutal. And they went and underwent nine months of, of privation. They were blockaded. They, people starved to death, literally starved to death. Mm-hmm. And I read accounts of people tearing the bark off the trees to eat because there was nothing to eat. I mentioned the elephants being slaughtered. And Sarah elected to stay in Paris when everybody had fled and convert the theater where she had been headlining into an infirmary Mm -hmm. uh, for wounded soldiers. And it made her a patriotic symbol in France. All her life, she was viewed as an, an extreme patriot because she stayed put. And this is the end of the Napoleonic era. This is the last Napoleon to sit on the imperial throne. France never has an emperor after this. Mm -hmm. So she witnesses this end of an era. And it also marks a change in her own life in that when the siege is over, she has to rebuild everything she had built before. The theaters were decimated. The populace was impoverished. There was a new government. No one kind of knew what Paris was in ruins. You know, many of Hausmann's, Napoleon's chief architect, Hausmann, who's redesigned the Paris that we still see today, they re- they rebuilt it, they fixed it, but much of what he had done was ruined by the siege. They were blowing, shooting cannon into the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I really wanted to focus on was the transition. This is a transitional era for Sarah. She finds a cause that's higher than herself, which is this infirmary. She survives this horrific siege and experiences hunger and privation, which I show in the book. And then she has to come out of this and figure out a way to get back on track and she has a family to support which interesting is that she has her son she has her sisters she has her mother who despite their very antagonistic relationship sarah never turned her back on her family and so the siege couldn't i couldn't get distracted by everything i could have been distracted by i had to stay very focused on how things directly affect sarah and how it propels her forward because it is a, a turning point for her she also discovers, I think, in that moment that she has far more resilience than she thinks she might have had. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It gives her this purpose beyond herself. Yeah. No, yeah, it was all very skillfully done, of course. So pivoting a little bit, first of all, let's find out how are you doing in terms of your writing and everything during this strange time of our lives. <laughs> What's your writing day like? Yeah, yeah. I'm under contract, so I'm, I have a book to deliver. I'm finding it oddly difficult to stay inspired because it's just so dreadful out there. Mm. And so a lot of times what happens is you're trying to get focused on this woman from the past and, and her story and you ask yourself, how can this matter right now? There's so much going on. And so it's been tough. It's, it's been tough. The seclusion's not unusual for me. I'm a writer. Being at home, working is not, I haven't noticed the quarantine. Yeah. But it hasn't affected me that badly. But it has done something to my creativity in the sense that I, I find myself having to take more breaks and, and let the book steep longer than I usually would as I try to find my way through what's going on currently and then 
putting that aside so that I can get back into the story that I'm working on. Yeah, I've heard things like that from other writers too. Who've, who it's just it's the same, but it's different. <laughs> Life well, it's, goes. Yeah, it's yeah. very different because you're yeah. very aware of what's going on outside. We have a, a national political situation that's very tense, mm-hmm. and you have a, a global pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's brought up a lot of issues for me. I lived through the AIDS epidemic, so mm-hmm. to see yeah. another pandemic happening in my lifetime is. It's weird. Yeah. I never thought I'd see anything quite what I went through in the 80s. And to see this happening again on such a global scale is, it's weird. It's been a little PTSD for me. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I could see that, how it would be. Yeah, it just brings Um, up these issues of mortality and, and the fragility of our society about how one little virus can just throw everything into chaos so quickly. Yeah. And then it'll all go back to the way it was and people will forget the lessons we've learned. Well, with this situation, that's the one thing I've been feeling is that we're not going to go back to the way we were. It's going to, it's going to bring a marked change, I think. In what ways do you think? Eventually they'll bring up, they'll find a vaccine, but we don't know how effective a vaccine will be. We don't know if it will be an annual vaccine like the flu we all know the flu still kills thousands of people every year. This virus isn't going away. Mm-hmm. We're going to need to learn to live with it. And so I think it will change the way we view global pandemics in the future, hopefully. We'll be more prepared. And I also think it will change the way, hopefully it will change the way we see what we value in life. So I think this has shown just how little certain things matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, what you can do without, what you don't need, what, what you can, can how you can simplify your life. But the thing that I really want is for what we've learned is necessary to stay of value to us, like the people who work in the grocery stores, the delivery people, the people who have ha- who have basically kept the economy going as much as it could. Right. I worry that we're just going to subside back and let them all fall into the background and the teachers, all that sort of thing. That's my worry. But yeah. we'll, time will tell. It's definitely a, a very, it's, it's a time of upheaval. It's a time of reckoning for the human race on many mm-hmm. levels. I mean, watching just how some areas of the planet have flourished in our absence. Yes. Yeah. That in itself is something to to say, (laughs) wow, when we stop flying so much and driving so much and polluting so much, you know, look how quickly nature comes back. I'm a very, I've always been very concerned about the climate and the environment. My whole life, I've Mm -hmm. been very much an animal lover and a supporter of the natural world. So... To me, I'm hoping that's a lesson we take forward, that the planet is not irrevocably broken. We, there are ways to fix what's happening or to make things less catastrophic. But if we continue right. on the path that we've been on, the virus is one thing, but watching what's happened when we stop doing all the things we did with the planet and how quickly it can recover, that's a lesson we shouldn't forget. You know, because <sighs> From your lips, as they say. Right. Our biggest issue always is people's need for profit. Yeah. Yep. So 
on that uncheerful note, let's switch a little bit to something else, which is you're working on another novel. And when is that, when will we be able, when is that sort of due? Well, the manuscript is due in December of 2021. So it's 2020 this year. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm going to make the deadline. It's looking Mm -hmm. dicey right now. Mm -hmm. Um, If I make the deadline, I, I was told publication would be in the fall of 2021. But having had a novel released in the middle of the pandemic, I'm not overly eager to go through that again. You put a lot of time and effort into writing a book and it's a huge endeavor and then comes out and it's not in stores and people can't get it in stores and you can't do anything. You can't do person, you can't do events. You can't do anything to promote the book. It's really disappointing. So I'm going to work, you know, as hard as I can to make my deadline and then we'll see where it goes. If everything goes as scheduled sometime in 2021, everything is subject to change because publishing yeah. hasn't even, people haven't even gotten back to work in publishing and now they're saying no one's going back to the office before next year. Everything could be delayed. Mm-hmm. I just don't know. I, right now I have no clear, and, and my most important and my, my primary goal is just to deliver the book I want to deliver. You know, yeah. deliver the best manuscript I can deliver. Yeah. Yeah. So it takes a little bit longer. It's going to take a little bit longer. I've been really good about keeping my deadlines. I don't think I've ever missed a deadline in my entire career. Mm. It's needed to make the book better than I'm going well. It's I'm writing about Jenny Churchill, the mother of. Oh, nice. Yeah. Jenny Jerome. And she was from Brooklyn, right? That's my first American character. Yeah. She spent most of her life in England. She has a very full life. And in this particular novel, there was no way to carve out an arc. The more, no matter how I approached her, I had to do her full life. Yeah. In order yeah. to get everything. I, saw, I haven't done a full life in a book since Catherine de' Medici, I think, was the last oh, time right. I saw a character's life. And yeah, so, um, look, um, I look to my right and the book is on my bookshelf, <laughs> Catherine de' Medici. Yeah. And it's much more challenging, first of all, because... Publishers want shorter and shorter books. The word counts are very stringent. You're not given more than what you're allotted. They want them shorter because people's attention spans are apparently decreasing. And I have a full life to cover. And she had a very full life. And so oftentimes, with all all of my novels, my biggest challenge is always it's not what to include, it's what not to include. Yes, yes. And that was when, I think it was Anne Easter-Smith, when I inter- interviewed her, she had that great little line that said that we as historical novelists have to know everything so that we can figure out what we have to leave out. Exactly. <laughs> First of all, the research for this novel has been intense. I've had to delve into all kinds of areas. It's very much in the era I've been working in lately. I've been working in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, my last three novels, will, including this one, will be in the late 19th century. So Romanoff Empress and Sarah Bernhardt and the Jenny Churchill book are all women of this era. They're mm-hmm. all contemporaries of each other. They're vastly different. One was right. a Russian empress, one was a French actress. Jenny's a, an American socialite who marries into the British aristocracy. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, I'll be very excited when that book is out, I'm sure. But I really, I can't 
endorse you enough as a historical novelist. It's really great to have um, such strong people in this genre, which I absolutely love. And it's the challenge is keeping going and keeping coming up with things that fit into the what's going on in the market. And we're not going to go into that now because that's a whole other conversation. <laughs> other conversation but anyway what I just wanted to say was I really appreciated you taking this time to talk to me it was really great connecting yeah and uh, where can people find you do you have a website and stuff website it's www.cwgortner.com and there there are social media links I have Facebook Twitter I have uh, Pinterest I'm not on Instagram and I try to stay off. These are my social medias that I do. Mm-hmm. I just do Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and Pinterest because yeah. Pinterest is great because I have pictures. So for readers who want to see my characters, photographs, and paintings, all my books are featured there as well as my obsessions with fashion and movie stars and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. But I try to, social media is a monster and it can eat you up. So I try to keep it contain but you can always visit yeah. me on my website and find there's links to all my books and my international editions and all the rest of it and if book clubs want to invite me to read to me to work with them to talk to their book clubs there's a link where you can write me directly to schedule me for your book club and i do that a lot i've been doing a lot of those recently actually and that's been nice that's the one nice thing about technology is that i even if we're locked in i can still visit book clubs yeah well, that's great yeah I think I'm going to let you off the hook and let you get back to what you're doing. But again, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Suzanne. Always great to see you. Great to see you too. You've been listening to It's Just Historical, hosted by Suzanne Dunlap. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google. Visit the podcast website at itsjusthistorical.com and find out more about me and my books at suzanne-dunlap.com. That's Suzanne with an S and Dunlap with an A. Until next time.